Hi, I'm divorce attorney Kim Shashinsky, and this is Happily Even After. You can listen to me live every Thursday from 5 to 6 p.m. on 103.9 FM or online at liradionews.com. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you've listened to my show before, you know that my mission is to help divorcing couples restructure their family with dignity and privacy by keeping them out of the court system. I'm passionate in my belief that if divorce is done right, it is entirely possible for everyone to move on and live happily, even after. My practice is located in Garden City and is completely focused on helping families avoid the pitfalls of divorce litigation by offering the healthy and more positive process options of mediation, collaborative divorce, and negotiated settlement. You can visit me at adrlawny.com or reach me at 516-308-2922. So today we have a very exciting and interesting show, and we will be joined in a little while by psychologist Dr. Roxanne Pollock. And she's going to discuss narcissism and the impact that it has on the divorce process. The term narcissism, I think, is overused. And generally, when a client tells me that their spouse is a narcissist, what they mean is that he or she is self-centered and selfish. But true narcissism is far more malignant than just run-of-the-mill self-absorption. Going through a divorce, particularly a litigated one, is hard enough, but when you have issues of addiction, mental illness, or personality disorders, when they're involved, it can be absolutely hellish. I've handled countless cases where one of the parties is a true narcissist, and I have to say that they are a nightmare. Narcissists are typically super smart people who quickly learn the ins and outs of the legal system and become master manipulators of it and everyone involved in the process. The legal system is a huge playground for a narcissist whose ultimate goal is to create as much chaos and inflict as much harm as possible. Mayhem and destruction is a narcissist's happy place. Fortunately, over the years, I've come to be able to recognize a narcissist pretty quickly in an interview, and I never take them on as clients. If I do happen to miss it in the beginning, it's really not long before they show their true colors, and at that point, I get off the case as fast as I can. Unfortunately, I don't have that level of control when my client's spouse is the narcissist, and those cases are nightmares. The two worst case scenarios are when a narcissist picks another narcissist to be their attorney, or when they decide that they're going to represent themselves. Lying is a sport for a narcissist, and inflicting as much pain and suffering as possible is the end game. When a narcissist is represented by another narcissist, that case is going to be a bloodbath. I have only found myself in that situation once over the past 30 years, and I can tell you I still have the scars to show for it. In that case, I represented a stay-at-home mom with four children under the age of 10. Her husband, the narcissist, made false allegations that she was sexually abusing the children and had a drug addiction. Throughout the entire case, he made countless calls to Child Protective Services with false accusations of abuse against her. This narcissist was hell-bent on having my client removed from the house, so he would continually call the police on her and lie that she had attacked him. Once, he even went so far, and I couldn't believe this, he even went so far as to throw himself down the stairs and accuse her of pushing him in an attempt to kill him. Sadly, one of the kids witnessed the entire event and told the police that his father threw himself down the stairs and his mother was in the kitchen when it happened. That incident occurred two years into the horrific custody battle that he had launched. But fortunately, it was the thing that ultimately exposed him and brought him down. 
It took three and a half years for that case to end. My client got custody of the children, but by the time it was over, the house was in foreclosure, the bank accounts were drained, the narcissist quit his job to avoid paying child support, and my client was on the brink of a nervous breakdown. Throughout the entire case, the narcissistic attorney did his client's bidding with exquisite pleasure. It was one of the most disgusting and abhorrent experiences of my entire career. But even worse than that is a case where a narcissist decides that they're going to represent themselves. In a case like that, you're playing defense from day one. The person loves to file motion after motion after motion because it doesn't cost them anything to do so. They'll refuse to settle even the most basic issue, cause everything to go to a hearing, and then they'll file an appeal for every court decision. They often write letters to the judge with accusations of misconduct. They threaten their spouse's attorney with lawsuits, file grievances against them with the Bar Association, trash them on social media with bad reviews. The attacks just go on and on. Basically, they use the legal system as a weapon of mass destruction. Defending against that kind of abuse can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I once had a case like that that went on for five years. The only reason it ended was because the narcissist had a heart attack and died. That was karma. It is such a huge understatement to say that a narcissist can completely destroy someone's life and not even bat an eyelash. They really, really just don't care. The poor victims of these people generally have a very long road to recovery ahead of them. It takes a long time in therapy to heal from the trauma and put themselves back together. My belief that divorce should not be handled in the judicial system is even stronger when there's a narcissist involved. Litigation with a narcissist is a no-win proposition and should be avoided if at all possible. So my guest today is Dr. Roxanne Pollock, who is a psychologist with a private practice in Muttontown. She specializes in relationships, divorce counseling, anxiety, depression, and bereavement. She consults as a family child specialist in collaborative divorce cases and is a mediator and a parenting coordinator. She has been an allied staff member for North Shore University Hospital in Manhasset in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry since 1996. Welcome, Dr. Pollock. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for inviting me to your show. You're very welcome. So, as you well know, the process of divorcing a narcissist is grueling. And I have my perspective as an attorney, but, uh, but I'm so happy to have you here to speak to the issue as a doctor. So can you start by telling our audience what narcissism is? Well, you were very right in that many people come to a divorce situation and believe that their spouse is a narcissist because uh, for many reasons, which we may go into later. But when we talk as professionals and mental health professionals about narcissism, we're talking about something quite specific. We're talking about a diagnosis of narcissism, and it's called a narcissistic personality disorder. And essentially what it is, it's a pattern of behavior that usually starts around early adulthood. You wouldn't say it's childhood because all children, in a way, are narcissists, and it's normal developmentally. Children are the center of the universe, and they expect everyone to be, everything to be done for them. But by the time you reach early adulthood, you should have a sense of the other person. But the narcissist has such a need for admiration and has such a lack of empathy, meaning that they are completely unaware or don't care about the needs and wants of another person, that it comes up in a variety of contexts, and there are a number of criteria, and you have to meet a number of the five criteria out of nine in order to reach a real diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. Some of those are, and I'll 
just go through them quickly, are there's a grandiosity. The person thinks they're the best thing since Swiss cheese. Uh, very often they're preoccupied by fantasies that they are the best, they're most powerful, they have the, all the success or the most ideal love in the world, which you can imagine has a problem once the relationship starts to deteriorate. They believe they're special and they're unique and they can only be understood by high-status special people, which creates a problem. And what also happens there is very often they'll put you initially on a pedestal, and then when you don't meet their needs, you become the dirt beneath their feet. So it goes, you go from high to low, essentially, in someone's estimation, if they have narcissism. Uh, they also require tons of admiration and respect. They feel entitled. The, these people are the kind of people who will cut in line and feel fine about it, because indeed, why should they wait? They tend to be interpersonally exploitative because essentially their goals are important, not other people. They, as I said before, they lack empathy. They just don't identify or recognize other people's needs or wants. They're often envious of others if they have more than they do, or if they have problems with other people. They feel that the reason of, for those problems is that other people are envious of them, and they're very often arrogant or haughty, so that they have this attitude that can be off-putting. Although, interestingly enough, initially, they can be quite charming. Wow, I think, I think I've seen all of those traits <laughs> in narcissists in some they of the cases suffer, I've handled. By the way, they, because they're, they, as they have these sense of being superior, they really are hypersensitive to perceived criticism. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. So, so this is an actual diagnosis. It is. It's an actual diagnosis. Is it common? It's, well, in the general population, they're estimated at about... 5% for women and 7% for men. Why 7% it might maybe higher is unclear. There could be some genetic underpinnings. Uh, they're unclear about that. But if you look at upbringing, clearly men can tend to be more competitive in their upbringing and women are taught to be more nurturing. So that could account for some of the difference in perceived uh, narcissism. But they have, since there are problems with relationships, you're going to see them walk through your door more often in, in the context of divorce. Yes. They're very difficult in terms of uh, treating in therapy, and very often they will not see themselves as needing therapy, and they'll only be in a therapist's office if they have distress, such as because of divorce or other problems. Right, yes, or they're court-ordered to be there. Right. <laughs> they also have trouble losing, and as you know, oh. it's just full of loss. Absolutely. Loss of relationship, loss of money, loss potentially of time with the children. Yes. So it's very difficult for someone who has narcissism. Yes. And they'll also burn it all down if need be to deprive the other person of it. Some will. Yeah. Yeah. So why is it important for me as an attorney and my client to understand narcissism in the context of divorce? Well, I think you need to understand it because if, um, you're going to have to deal with it, as you've talked about for the last 30 years, you have to deal with it. And when your client walks through the door and they're not a narcissist, essentially, because you don't necessarily see someone whom you, see, whom you uh, believe to be narcissistic, mm -hmm. then you have to help them understand what's going on with their partner. Yes, yeah. And that's really important and how to deal with it. And you have to be sensitive to the effect on them of having lived with someone who has that disorder. Yeah, it's, it's devastating. I've seen that firsthand. So when you're assessing... By the way, I don't want to homogenize all people who have narcissism. Okay. And narcissism is somewhat on a, continuous, uh, a continuum, so you have to take that into account too. But there are people who are very vengeful, 
and uh, would do anything. And there are also people who are narcissists who don't see the needs of other people and feel entitled, but they're very vulnerable and afraid of making mistakes. And there's a world of difference between the two. So you mentioned there's a spectrum. Yeah. But are there different categories on that spectrum of narcissists? Well, that's why it, it's a, you can, it is a different. It, the spectrum does lend itself to calling it different categories. I mean, it, there isn't different categories in the diagnostic manual that we use. But people who study narcissists, obviously two people who have narcissism are not the same. Right. Any more than two people who have schizophrenia are the same. Right. So everybody has their own... Um, individual ways of looking at things. Mm-hmm. And in terms of types, which is really what you're talking about, certain people or researchers point to this grandiose type, which is the kind that always wants attention and is bombastic. And then you have this very vulnerable type, the one that shies away because they're afraid that their mistakes are going to be evident and they can't handle them. Uh, you have people who uh, want to be seen as very helpful, but they're really not helpful. It's all about the external validation from other people. The image, and keeping up the, the image, yeah, right? The image. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah. almost like an illusion that they need to perpetuate. I've heard the phrase malignant narcissist. What is that? Yeah, and that's the last one, and that's the one you usually hear about. And that's the one that's really vengeful and uh, aggressive, and they're the ones that you really have the nightmare with. And that's very, sometimes it's very hard to come to an agreement with people who are that bad. Oh, it's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's really, really they difficult. They can't get the sting out to the degree that it's really, they, that's where you say it's burnt earth, kind yeah. of scorched earth mentality somewhere. Yeah. So, you know, because a lot of people... rejected, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> a lot of people come to see me and, and they'll say to me, oh, my spouse is a narcissist. And undoubtedly, most of those people, to me, they, they seem to be particularly kind and loving and empathetic, like really nice people. Why would a person like that marry a person who has narcissism? Well, there What's the attraction? Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Well, partially, the person who has a, a narcissistic disorder, as I said, can initially be extremely charming. Hmm. which generally frightens the spouse because they're afraid that the, their, the, let's say the husband in this case, although as it could be the wife as well, I don't mean to, I'll go back and forth with the genders, mm-hmm. but essentially they would think that the husband is going to charm the judge or charm the, their attorney or something. So mm-hmm. they're very much afraid that they could be charmed because they, these people can be charming. Mm-hmm. And initially, it's very seductive. They could be very generous. They could be very giving. Yeah, yeah. And then as time goes by, it becomes very inconsistent. So they give, and then all of a sudden they're very critical. They alienate you from friends, potentially. They come down on you. They tell you, oh, this is all for your own good. They make you feel that you're crazy and you don't know what reality is anymore. You become confused and upset, and, and you really don't know which way is up. Yeah. So it could be that the person has their own upbringing, mm-hmm. and they're used to narcissism because maybe they had narcissistic parents themselves. So it so feels normal to them on some level. Right. Wow. So therefore they learned it. Or sometimes right. they want to undo it, if you wish. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is very often someone who's narcissistic can come across as though they're very confident, which is very appealing. Oh, That's sure. Cool. Yeah. 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 It's very Especially if you have someone who's perhaps not as self-confident, you know, shy, then someone who's very charismatic and outgoing and charming is going to be appealing. 
Well, even with somebody who isn't. I mean, mm-hmm. most people like someone who comes across with a certain degree of confidence. Because yes. When that person likes you, you feel that that person is really discerning. They're right. desperate. Right, right, right. Yeah. It has to do with you. Yes. Met the bar. Yeah. Met the standard. Yeah. So I've also always been curious. So narcissists are at a very core level incapable of like real intimacy and having a real give and take relationship. So... If they're only concerned with themselves, why do they ever bother to get married? Well, they need a mirror. Ah, okay. The the narcissist requires a great deal of admiration from other people. Right. And they're also looking for that ideal love kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Person on their arms to elevate them. Oh, that's very interesting. They feel elevated by someone else. So is there like some sort of codependency at play there? Uh, It's interesting that you say codependency. In that, I mean, all relationships are interdependent, but when there's some kind of pathological dynamic or bad, you know, not healthy dynamic going on, definitely you can see that both parties play a part in keeping it. For instance, let's take someone who has an alcohol problem. So the woman has an alcohol problem, let's say, and the husband calls, uh, she was drunk one night, and the husband calls the boss the next morning to say she has the flu. They're both perpetuating the lie and the alcoholism. And that's kind of what codependency means. Right. In this context, I think that, indeed, even the person who is making excuses for, for the person who has narcissism mm-hmm. is getting something out of the relationship, right. which I think is interesting for lawyers to know. That is very it, interesting. Not only that, it, it's, you, you said it before, you feel that the person you're seeing, the client, is very kind and empathetic. Mm-hmm. But also, they're getting something out of it, and they can be quietly manipulative. The problem is you can't simply see that someone who is narcissistic is the bad guy or the victimizer, and the other party is the victim. Right. There's really a dance going on in a relationship. There is. It's very interesting. And and often I'll see um, the the spouse go back to the narcissist uh, out of a sense of guilt. Or dependency. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, it does offer something, the relationship. Yes. It offers another person in there where if you're insecure, it offers a better lifestyle potentially. I mean, there are a number of things that someone doesn't want to give up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk to you a little bit about something called narcissistic abuse syndrome. And I'm, I'm curious to know, first of all, if that's a real thing. And what is it? Well, it's not a diagnosis, but it's certainly spoken about. Essentially, it's what is the effect of being married to someone who treats you uh, with contempt, with criticism, or inconsistently. One day says wonderful things about you, and the next day is very critical. One day gives you gifts, and the next day really puts you down. So how do you deal with that? And also doesn't admit what they're doing. In other words, they could throw shade, essentially. They could say something, backhanded compliments, make you feel as though you're crazy. You start to really question uh, your reality. Am I? Some people call it gaslighting from the old yes. Mark Bergman movie. Yep, yep. They, I have clients yep. tell me that all the time, that they're, right. they're constantly being gaslighted. Right. The husband tries to convince her he's cra- that she's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So essentially, that's, it's all you. It's not me. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on here? And the person starts to really question themselves. Yeah. Am I crazy? They already probably felt insecure to begin with. So it's when you're with someone and it's a significant person and they say critical things to you, it even lowers your self-esteem. It's the opposite of someone who's, having, who's being supportive of you. Right, right. There's no support to be had in a marriage like that. 
right. So yeah. the person often has trouble making decisions, and they question themselves, and they mm-hmm. they feel isolated because uh, very often the narcissist could isolate them from family and friends. Yes, yeah, I've seen that where you know they cut off um, parents and and sometimes even children, adult children. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, I've cool. seen that happen. It's it's very sometimes very, very overtly. Yeah, yeah. And therapists too, obviously, if yeah. the person is seeing a therapist. Sometimes the spouse will intervene, right. one who has narcissism, and stop it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that happens a lot. So, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and I start to notice trends. And I've noticed that my particularly nightmarish cases almost always involve a narcissist. Mm-hmm. And what I find is they're super smart people, and they learn really quickly how to manipulate the system, mm. and they use it as a weapon against their spouse. They're typically the people that lie about everything, and they make multiple baseless motions they create they just create chaos and literally won't allow the divorce proceeding to end mm-hmm. so what's the best way to divorce if you're married to someone who has narcissism no no it's tough i mean and often the person who is on the end of that is also feeling a lot of anxiety and depression so mm-hmm. very very tough um but uh I think that if at all possible, which is exactly what you said at the top of the hour, it would be better if you could come to some kind of settlement or some kind of agreement. It's not always possible. I know there are people who say you can never, ever come into a settlement agreement with someone who has narcissistic personality disorder. You always have to end up in court. And you've seen all the horror cases in court, as I have. Cases that go on 15 years afterwards, Mm -hmm. continue to fight and use the children as pawns to do so. So if... There were a couple of things that I look for, certainly, before taking on a collaborative case. And that is, is there any possibility that someone can hear at least what the other person is saying about them, even if they disagree? So, uh, so you think there are some circumstances where, where a collaborative can, divorce process is the best way? Okay. Do better. Yeah, because okay. you have a team helping you. I'll explain. I'm mm-hmm. sure you're going to be interested in this. Well, you know it, of course, but what the collaborative process is. Um, but essentially, what you're really trying to do is... It helps help the narcissist see, or it really, I hate calling the person the narcissist. Really, they have narcissistic personality disorder. It's just too long to say every time. Right. But they're not <laughs> the sum total of their diagnosis. Of you course not. Be that way. <laughs> but essentially, what I'm trying to say is the person with narcissism, um, if you can get them to see that it is in their, in their self-interest, which it is, Mm-hmm. to settle instead of to fight. Right. Because they're going to spend a lot of money, as you pointed out, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars, lose their jobs, do all these kinds of things, really to elevate their ego a little bit, mm-hmm. to, get, to be vengeful to, or to get the sting out of being rejected. I mean, even these people sometimes, when they do the rejecting or when they have the affair, they still feel like they're the victim and the other person didn't treat them correctly and that's why the relationship broke down. So it's very difficult. These are not people who generally accept accountability for their actions. They're not people who generally apologize. If they do, it's if I hurt your feelings, you know, it isn't a real apology or acknowledgement of it. Right. And so there are people who really, um, they have to see how it's in their interest to some degree. They, they want to have a relationship going forward with their children. They don't want to lose all their money in litigation, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that can happen um, more readily in a collaborative process than in litigation because they're, it's a different atmosphere and yes, they're sitting at a table. Right, right. So I talk a lot about collaborative divorce on this show, and, but I talk about it from my perspective as an attorney. Could you give us a brief description from your perspective 
as a psychologist of what the collaborative process is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think collaborative is especially good when you have cases where uh, two people have unequal power or not an equal voice or unequal knowledge, then it's, I think, really essential if you're going to have a settlement kind of um, format to have something like a collaborative divorce. The beauty of a collaborative divorce is essentially you've got a team working for you. You have one financial person dealing with just the net worth statements alone with the people um, and dealing with it. So you have one statement. You don't have two lawyers doing that. And you have one mental health person, which we call ourselves in this, in this format, a family specialist, because we're not acting as the therapist for the family. We're here to help the family transition into divorce, and we have an idea of the entire family trying to give them a healthier post-divorce life than they would have had if there was litigation. But you're not treating either party, and you can't treat either party after the process is over, right? No, I can't can't use people who are my patients Mm -hmm. and be the family specialist for them, and I can't treat people that I see in this uh, setting and take them on as patients or their family members afterwards. So you're truly neutral. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Okay. Person in this setting, but I'm trying to help the family. I will deal with them also alone in dealing with parenting plans. When mm-hmm. I deal with a parenting plan, what I do is try to get a handle on the children and their personalities and their special needs, and what are the parents' schedules and what's possible, and do we have to bring the voice of the children into the uh, into the room in some sense, and how do we do that? And that's done separately. And then I also help the attorneys understand the dynamics of what's going on with the couple. Because it's very easy for attorneys to ally with their client and not see the, the bigger picture. And in a meeting, also, the question is, if attorneys are dealing with the solutions, someone has to be dealing with the communications. Right, right. So how do you keep it going? How do you call for a break because it's getting too heavy? How do you, those kinds of issues, too. Because most uh, divorces go on and on and on because of the emotional obstacles. If yes. two attorneys got together, they could make a deal very quickly. Right, right. It's all the emotional processing that the people are going through at different different paces, and that that's what always derails a divorce. Yeah, yeah. So you and I have worked together on collaborative cases mm-hmm. before, and and having you on the team is just a, an amazing gift because in addition to being a specialist about. Um, child development, you're also an expert on conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. So it's so helpful to have you in the room when either one or both parties just start start in, you know, it, that's really, really helpful. And that's, that's part of your role. And it's great to have you in the room for that purpose. So, no. so other than um, helping the children, I'm uh, helping the um, the parents come to a, a meeting of the minds for a parenting plan and custody issues. What are some other issues that you help them resolve? Um, well, I think that you, the issues that are important is how to communicate with one another. That, especially when you're in conflict, as you said, you know, that's a very important issue. You don't have to agree with one another. And indeed, part of the problem is that you used to be a unit, the couple used to be a unit, mm-hmm. and therefore your needs was the other person's needs. And now you become separate people, and all of a sudden their needs are perhaps in conflict with your needs. So how can you see where there's still commonalities between the two of you 
where this was someone you cared about. Perhaps uh, you still have children in common, etc. There are a number of reasons why it would be important to be able to communicate better than you're doing and not be triggered by the old uh, scripts that you've been living for the last how many years of your marriage. Right. Yeah, because we all, we all, marriages cycle, right? One cycle after another, and we all have our patterns of communication. And they keep recurring. Mm -hmm. Problems keep coming up again and again. Yeah. So give us some um, techniques or tips on on how you would speak to someone with narcissistic personality disorder in the context of a collaborative case to help them um, be reasonable and come to an agreement. Mm -hmm. Well, someone who uh, has narcissism generally wants to be in control and needs to be admired. And it is very tempting, if they're being arrogant or difficult, to treat them in kind with sarcasm and contempt. Yes. And you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, it, it's not a good way to be. And second of all, it's not going to achieve what you want, even though it gives you perhaps some satisfaction in the moment. And so I'm also helping the spouse realize that if that's the dynamic between them, what triggers the spouse and how can that spouse respond differently? That this is right. now the person you're going to divorce. You don't have to be married to them any longer and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Even the person with narcissism is the same thing. So how do you deal with it? Um, with the person who is, has narcissism, they may need to dominate the conversation and they may want to listen, be listened to at the expense of other people. Very frequently, they're doing a lot of interrupting and they're claiming the other person is interrupting. Right. But the other person, interestingly enough, has their own issues, too, as I said. They're not, it's not as though it's a bad guy, good guy situation, but there's another dynamic going on at the same time with the other person. For instance, they often feel, the other person often feels that they're doing all the work in the family and the other person does nothing. And that's a common perceptual mistake, where you underestimate what the other person does and overestimate what you do in a relationship. Right. So with a narcissist, I guess one of the keys is uh, is patience. Just don't don't be reactive mm-hmm. um, to to what they're doing or what they're saying. But I guess there's, there's a difference between reacting and responding, right? Yeah, they do need limits. Mm-hmm. Need limits, but I, both people are going to need limits. There may have to be breaks because there's still going to be emotions that are there and very intense emotions. It's mm-hmm. Crisis in someone's life. It's the worst times of their life, really, one of the worst times in their life, yeah. going through something like this. So you may have to break. You may have to, if someone says something critical, and imagine someone who has more narcissism speaks out of a very critical place. I think it's the place for the family specialist to rephrase it so that the basic theme can be heard by the spouse, minus the criticism and judgment and contempt. Right. Don't challenge the narcissist. Yeah, it's not a question of challenging, but nevertheless, the person has to be heard, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and vice versa. And to engage the person who has narcissism in the solutions, but the solutions not just that benefit them, it's since the process that you've agreed is a better process if you settle, how are you going to address this need of your spouse? So you get them actively involved also in the problem solving. Right. And I think that this process ultimately um, benefits the spouse because the spouse is learning new communication skills. Yes, and the team is modeling it. Right. And even though this marriage is ending and you don't have to live with this person anymore, if you have children together, they're in your life forever. So to the extent that you can learn coping techniques and communication skills, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Yes, if you can. I mean, again, uh, ideally, 
there would be co-parenting where two where the two parents would be able to really discuss things for the welfare of their children. Mm-hmm. It's not always possible, partially for the reasons that you discussed before. It may be too toxic for the spouse of a narcissist to essentially be in the same room or to constantly expose themselves to old styles of communication right. come up. Mm-hmm. So in which case we try to deal with parallel parenting so that it's just not negative, but where we do it through emails or through Family Wizard or through, you know, we do it through different kinds of sites where we can take out some of the judgments and start to deal with how things could be said differently and how we can do problem solving instead of blaming. Mm -hmm. So we're really helping the family deal with it differently for the sake of the children. Yeah, I I think that the collaborative process is really beneficial for the spouse because to a certain extent, he or she has some support from the team that they're never going to get in a courtroom. It's, Absolutely. It's just battle. It's scorched the earth wartime in the courtroom. And there's, there's really, you know, you're just there with your attorney, and that attorney is, is fighting for you. But it's different than having a team of people who aren't fighting with each other but are really there to support you in this oh. process. Absolutely agree. Not only that, but I think the team has to be very in tune to listening to the quiet spouse yes. and asking, do they understand and getting them to advocate for themselves and getting them to have a voice in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very important, too, yeah. so they can feel that support. Yeah. You know, I've noticed that, that people with narcissism, they, they often use the children as pawns to hurt, mm-hmm. hurt their spouse. Mm-hmm. How does a parent... Tell us some ways that a parent with narcissism interacts with their children. Well, to someone who has narcissism, children are a way, an extension of themselves when they want to brag to other people. Look at my DNA. Mm -hmm. But when they're in conflict themselves with a child because the child is not being controlled and uh, they're not being dominated, then it creates a lot of the same kinds of behavioral problems with the child as they have with the spouse. Right. The child falls from favor. And the idea is that the family specialist would help someone perhaps um, have the child get to a therapist, perhaps have the person who has narcissism as well as the other parents separately go into the therapist's office with the child at some point to deal on the relationship, Uh, the the other spouse to help the child um, not feel crazy themselves or to blame, but find a different way to talk to the other parent. Yeah, and, so, and the other, by the way, again, you have to be alert that the parent that you see is empathic isn't doing passive aggressive things to get even to feel powerful, which is I'm letting my child hear the phone calls to my mother yes. about how terrible their father is. Yes, done, yes, yes, yes. Crying and crying in front of the child so the child sees how miserable they are. That, that does happen a lot, whether or not there's a narcissist involved. Exactly. That, that kind of behavior happens a lot. Bad guy, good guy. You need yeah. to see the entire dynamic that's going on. Right, right, right. So how can a spouse... What are, what are some ground rules that allow someone to effectively co-parent with a narcissist? Because you're never going to change the narcissist, right? It's really more a function of changing your behavior and the way you communicate, I think. Well, it's certainly possible for someone who has narcissism to change, but it would take a lot to do that. and They'd have to be willing to do it, and they have to see the point in doing it. Uh, but yes, I think in any situation, you don't go into a marriage trying to change someone. I think you have to deal with the person that you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. You can you you um you can't change the person as you say you have to change your response to the person right and change your behavior 
Yeah, and yeah. that's not to get triggered, uh, to keep things neutral, mm-hmm. maybe keep things in text or short emails, then long letters or diatribes over the phone, um, to have limits. Some, mm-hmm. I think it's important to times to have consequences. Boundaries? By limits, you mean boundaries? Established. Stick to. Yeah. I I try really hard um, when I represent someone who's married to a narcissist to teach them to ignore the baiting and the outbursts. Just Mm -hmm. just don't engage in the game. Rise above it. Respond calmly as opposed to they're so good at pushing buttons. So instead of reacting from a place of, of really intense emotion, step back, take a deep breath, and formulate a response, not a reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Could you give us a few more tips about how to deal with a narcissist? We're just about to wrap well, things up. If there's a disagreement about what's real and what's not real, I mean, the bottom line is I would be telling someone who has uh, narcissism to write it down so that people should be able to agree about what the facts are and it should be easy to get. Oh, that's great. That's a great um, idea. Right. And if they say that the other person is too sensitive, so they're mm-hmm. trivializing what the other person's going through, the bottom line is, well, this is the person you married and you're divorcing. Mm-hmm. So you have to deal with their particular sensitivity. You have this or this in common, children, whatever it would be. Mm-hmm. So how yeah. to do that? So it's kind of how do you move it into problem solving right. and not get bogged down in all the excuses and the diversions and the distortions and all that. Well, that is great advice. Well, Dr. Pollock, that's our time for the day. I can't thank you enough for sharing such valuable information. And it was a pleasure having you. I hope you'll come back again in the future. I would love to. Thank you so much, Kim. It was a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you.